Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Bring the Noise, a history of early hip-hop. I'm your host, Rob Lamley. Musical history is a nebulous field to say the least. Very few genres have a definitive start date or even a definitive first recording. For example, musical historians argue over the first record that should be considered rock and roll. Some say it was Rocket 88 by Jackie Brenston and Ike Turner in 1951. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Others consider Rock a While by Gory Carter from 1949 a better candidate. While still others argue for Good Rocking Tonight by Roy Brown in 1947. Hip hop is a rare exception in that it can be traced back to a certain date and time. August 11th, 1973, at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx, New York City, when DJ Cool Herc first spun records using his merry-go-round technique to extend the break beats. After that date, though, is when things start to get a little murky. The sound of hip-hop changed immensely in the years following, but it all happened underground, in the house parties, the park parties, and in the clubs, with no recorded history of when these changes took place. These new ideas just sort of emerged and were quickly adopted and adapted by other musicians to the point that today, historians can't always say exactly who came up with which new style or technique, though there are plenty of artists who love to claim they were the first. It wasn't long after the historic August 11th party that DJs inspired by Herc, like Grandmaster Flash and Africa Bambata, began to make a name for themselves using their own merry-go-round skills, but they also used that as a jumping-off point to create their own unique sound. Similarly, MCs began adopting Kokla Rock's rhymes and crowd-pumping cadence, but also changing it and expanding it to include a variety of new styles. While rapping might have been as accessible as grabbing a pen and paper, DJing was still a rich man's game. Turntables were expensive, and to do the job, you'd need two. A thumping sound system was even more expensive. Having crates full of records sure wasn't cheap either. Because DJing was a big investment, during the early days of hip-hop, it was pretty easy for guys like Herc, Flash, Bambata, and DJ Breakout to make a name for themselves, carving up the Bronx into their own sonic territories. But that all changed on July 13, 1977. It was during a hot summer thunderstorm that three lightning strikes hit various pieces of Consolidated Edison's power equipment that served New York City. The first strike occurred at 8.37 p.m., and by 9.36, the city that never sleeps had gone dark. As discussed in our first episode, the 1970s were a pretty tough time for America, but especially for New York City. With widespread unemployment and poverty, many saw the July 13th blackout as an opportunity to steal from local businesses to get things that they could never otherwise afford. Across the city, over 1,600 stores were damaged during looting that lasted well into the daylight hours. The stretched thin police department did their best to stay on top of these crimes, arresting 4,500 people, but there are also photos and stories of overwhelmed officers simply standing by as hundreds of New Yorkers carry clothes, mattresses, couches, and television sets away from the broken windows of storefronts. In addition, the already overtaxed fire department that dealt with abandoned tenement building arson on a regular basis now had to fight over 1,000 fires in a single night, as looters often burned the business they had just stolen from. In all, the blackout lasted just over 24 hours, but resulted in around $300 million, or about $1.2 billion today, in damages to the city of New York. North of the civilized ordered compassion of the blacked-out hospital, thousands of East Harlem residents had taken to the streets in an orgy of looting and burning 
that shocked many of their neighbors. For it was not only the hardened criminals, the known felons of Spanish Harlem who had joined the human locust swarm. The cover of total darkness allowed the lowest qualities of previously peaceful people to surface. At first, there was only sporadic rock and bottle throwing at police. Later, there were shots fired. The cops were hard pressed to keep cool. Looting, people running, shots being fired, you know. At you. Right, you see you come out of the block, you know, towards our direction. More than 3,000 people were arrested during the blackout. Street cops tell me that was but a small fraction of the reality. Tens of thousands learned crime can pay. During the blackout, many looters targeted electronic stores because they sold high dollar items that were easy to carry away and could easily be flipped to pawn shops or interested buyers in the street for quick cash. Many people who bought stolen turntables, mixing boards, and home speakers were entrepreneurs who, after seeing the success of the likes of Herc, Flash, Breakout, and Bambata, wanted to get in on the lucrative DJ game. New DJs and rappers popped up literally overnight, filling in the gaps at house parties and park parties left behind by the big names who had mostly moved on to performing at clubs like the Twilight Zone and the Executive Playhouse. While some might see this expansion as a dilution of the art form with new, inexperienced voices, it actually forced innovation and competition, sparking the next era in hip-hop. And with such a crowded field, for some, the only way to make a name for themselves was to go mainstream. Sylvia Robinson was a pop singer before she was a rap record producer. She signed her first record contract at only 14 years old when she took the stage as Little Sylvia. Later, in 1956, she and her guitar instructor, Mickey Baker, formed the duo Mickey and Sylvia, and released a fun little ditty written by rock and roll legend Bo Diddley called Love is Strange. The song hit number one on the R&B charts, reached number 11 on the top 100, and has since become a member of the Grammy Hall of Fame. Mickey and Sylvia continued to record together for a few more years until Mickey wanted to change directions with his music career and left the United States to live in France. Meanwhile, Sylvia married Joe Robinson, a record producer, and they went on to found All Platinum Records in 1967, which focused on R&B and soul albums. Through the label, Sylvia wrote and produced songs like 1970's Love on a Two-Way Street by The Moments, which hit number three on the Billboard charts. Later, she wrote a song for R&B legend Al Green, who turned it down because it was too sensual for his tastes. So instead, Sylvia recorded the tune Pillow Talk herself in 1973, and it also wound up reaching number three on the charts. The Robinsons continued to put out minor hits here and there over the years, but by the late 1970s, the musical landscape was changing and the label was facing financial difficulties. Legend has it that Sylvia first heard rap music on her birthday in May 1979 and was immediately intrigued by this new sound. She was celebrating with friends and family at the famous Harlem World Disco, a popular night spot in New York, open from 1978 until 1985, and a very important venue for early hip-hop. It was Jack Taylor, a.k.a. the Fat Man, owner of the club as well as former president of Rojack Records, that told Sylvia of his intention to put out the first rap record featuring members of the Harlem World Crew, a loose collection of rappers based out of the nightclub. A few months later, in 1979, before Fat Man could follow through, Sylvia and Joe Robinson beat him to the punch with the first rap record, Rapper's Delight. The Robinsons knew that a rap record was risky, so they set up a new label to release Rapper's Delight, separate from All Platinum. They called this new label Sugar Hill Records, an homage to the Sugar Hill neighborhood of Harlem, known in the 1920s as the place for wealthy African Americans to live, and was one of the hotbeds of influence during the Harlem Renaissance. 
Even though it came together fairly quickly, putting out the first rap record was harder than you might think. At that time, most DJs and rappers didn't see how a rap record would even work. Most of the rhymes at a hip-hop party, also known as a get-down, were strung together with MCs passing the mic back and forth between each other so that there were no set songs, per se. Instead, a rap performance was more like a string of vignettes that could literally go on all night if the MCs were talented. The idea of condensing a performance like that down to a few minutes for a record just didn't make sense. So even though Sylvia Robinson, with help from her teenage son Joey Jr., scoured the clubs of New York City to find rappers that were willing to record, her search was coming up empty. Determined to find an act, Sylvia cast her net a little wider to include her own neighborhood, Inglewood, New Jersey. In Sylvia's search for a rapper, her son Joey Jr. heard about an MC named Casper from a DJ outfit called Sound on Sound. Casper had agreed to rap for Sylvia, but the day he was supposed to record, he never showed up at the studio. The next week on August 12, 1979, Sylvia, Joey Jr., and Warren Moore, a friend of Jr.'s, were driving past the McDonald's restaurant at 41 West Palisades Avenue in Inglewood, New Jersey, when they saw Casper walking down the street. They pulled over to talk, and he told them he had to back out of the deal. Casper's dad, who was a radio personality and knew something of Joe and Sylvia Robinson, suggested his son not get involved with producers who had alleged ties to various New York crime syndicates. It's true that the Robinsons were said to have ties to the mafia, as well as one of the biggest drug dealers in New York, Mr. Untouchable Nicky Barnes, so Casper's father was just looking out for his son. As Sylvia was driving off, Joey's friend Warren mentioned that there was a pizza place across the street known to have an employee that was in the rap game. So they made a U-turn and wound up in front of the Krispy Crust Pizza at 44 West Palisade Avenue to introduce themselves to said employee, Hank Big Bank Hank Jackson. The thing is, Hank wasn't a rapper. He was a manager for a rap crew known as Mighty Force, featuring DJ Wisco Wiz and rapper Curtis Brown, who went by the MC name Casanova Fly. In fact, Hank had only started working the pizza joint job to pay back his parents for a loan he'd taken out to buy better sound equipment for Mighty Force gigs. While making pizzas, Hank often sang along to mixtapes of live recordings of Casanova Fly, but Hank didn't actually write his own rhymes. But when Joey asked him to come audition for Sylvia, who was waiting outside, Hank could see that opportunity was knocking. Hank got into the backseat of Sylvia's car, still wearing his apron covered in flour from making pizza dough. Sylvia put some music on her car stereo, and Hank repeated the Casanova Fly lyrics he'd memorized. Meanwhile, 17-year-old high schooler Guy Master G. O'Brien, part of a two-man DJ crew called Phase 2, who worked the New Jersey party circuit, happened to be walking by with a friend of his who knew Joey Jr. Joey and the friend started talking, and when they heard Big Bang Hank rapping, O'Brien's friend said, He's alright, but my man's vicious, and called Master G over to the window. O'Brien spit some rhymes for Sylvia, and she thought, Why not two rappers? As if all of this wasn't improbable enough, the fairy tale version of the story goes that at this moment, Michael Wonder Mike Wright was across the street and came over to see what was going on. He also gave a curbside audition, and Sylvia decided to make it a three man group. However, according to the man himself in a 2006 interview with TheFoundation.com, that's not how things went down. Quote, Man, I don't know where that shit came from. The guy who suggested good times for the track was in Sound on Sound. He was my DJ, and his name was Ron the Mad Master Mixer. I accompanied him to the Robinsons' house later that night, but I wasn't around when they met at McDonald's and Krispy Crust, where Hank was working. I was at the house later, listening to Hank and Master G go back and forth, and Mrs. Robinson said that she was going to use both of them. I'm sitting there, and it's two in the morning, and they're finishing up, and something told me to speak up. I said, Mrs. Robinson, I can rap too. She told me to rap, and I did the hip-hop, hip-it thing, and I talked about the dog, the furniture, and everything in the room. Then she said she would use all three of us. And so the first rap group to be on record, the Sugar Hill Gang, was born. It was a fateful night that changed these young men's lives forever. When the newly formed Sugar Hill Gang met in the studio at 96 West Street in Inglewood on Wednesday, August 15th to record, the first thing they did was listen as the music track for Rapper's Delight was recorded. The backing track was essentially an instrumental version of the hit disco tune Good Times by Chic, a staple album for early rappers to rhyme over at clubs and parties.
However, Sugar Hill Records didn't want to pay to use the original song for their financially risky experimental rap record, so they opted to re-record the track instead. Re-recording part of a song for inclusion in a new song is a practice known as interpolation. It's a common technique in hip-hop, especially after a number of lawsuits in the 1980s made sampling the original song directly too expensive for most up-and-coming rappers. One of the most popular examples of interpolation includes Puff Daddy's use of the main theme from the police's Every Breath You Take for his song, I'll Be Missing You. Even super producer Dr. Dre used interpolation for his album The Chronic, borrowing the grooves from quite a few songs of notable funk deities Parliament. One of the house musicians that played for Rapper's Delight was bass guitar player Chip Sheeran, a fresh-out-of-high-school kid trying to make it big in the Big Apple. In a 2015 interview for NoTrouble.com, Sheeran says that Sylvia would pay musicians $60 or $70 to just hang around the studio, playing licks and bass lines as needed for the music she was recording that day. For Rapper's Delight, Sheeran and a now-forgotten drummer played a close approximation of good times for about 15 daunting minutes. Sheeran said that when they were done, they were both sweating bullets, but they got it done in one take. The bass line for Rapper's Delight is not exactly the same as the one for Good Times, by design. According to Sheeran, Sylvia asked him to change the bass line a little in an attempt to skirt around any rights issues. Chip talks about the change in his interview with No Trouble. Quote, So if you ever listen to the original bass line, what I did was play it on the downbeat. It was on the downbeat rather than on the upbeat or the last 16th. That was supposed to be the difference, as if when Niall Rogers heard it, he would say, nope, never heard it before. Needless to say, Robinson's attempt to avoid these legal hurdles didn't work. According to an interview conducted by Popbox TV during Canadian Music Week in 2007, co-founder of Chic, Niles Rogers, first discovered hip-hop thanks to Debbie Harry of the rock group Blondie. It might surprise you to hear that the singer behind the disco-fied Heart of Glass was into the hip-hop scene very early on, and introduced many of her contemporaries to the burgeoning genre. Don't worry, her place in hip-hop history will be discussed later in this podcast series. Rogers went with Harry to a couple of underground hip-hop parties where he heard his song, Good Times, being used as the basis for nearly every rap song. He was amazed to see DJ spinning and mixing his record to isolate and loop the breakbeat, then rapping for hours over the now-famous bass line. This didn't bother him so much, because they were live performances, but a few months later, Rogers was at a popular black nightclub called Leviticus, when the DJ put on a record that sounded very familiar. I'm out on the dance floor, and then all of a sudden, I hear... I said, hip and he says, yeah, I just bought this record up in Harlem. It's called Rapper's Delight. I said, what do you mean you bought the record? That's my song. And then I heard the strings from my record go, ew. Which is an exact sample before they had sampling. So that means that they took my record into the studio and either scratched it or they put it on a piece of tape and played it on top of their master. So um, big copyright infringement, you know, our music to us was sacred. Like I certainly didn't mind somebody jamming with us on stage live, but to record it and not put our names on it and then make a lot of money. And I think that the record was so big, it wound up being even bigger than Good Times. At least it was more exciting because it felt like a new art form. Lawyers were called, lawsuits were threatened, and in the end, Niles Rogers and the other founder of Chic, Bernard Edwards, were given co-writing credit for Rapper's Delight. 
In fact, early pressings of Rapper's Delight show Sylvia Robinson, Big Bank Hank, Wonder Mike, and Master G as co-writers. But on pressings after the Sheik lawsuit, only Rogers and Edwards are given credit, even though they didn't write any of the lyrics. While the story behind this decision is a lot of hearsay, the Robinsons' other record label, All Platinum Records, was on the verge of bankruptcy at the time, so it's unlikely they could afford a lengthy court battle. Especially for a rap song, something the Robinsons saw as a novelty hit that probably wouldn't have a very long shelf life. Unfortunately, the decision to give up these rights was made by the Robinsons without consulting any members of the Sugar Hill Gang. Despite the initial conflict, Niles Rogers isn't bitter anymore. In a 2016 interview for the Washington Post, Rogers is quoted as saying, We didn't realize it was the start of a whole new cut-and-paste art form. We soon realized that hip-hop was a lot like disco, an underground music that suddenly became viable in the marketplace and then a phenomenon that changed the world. He went on to say this about the relationship between disco and rap music. Our records were perfect for hip-hop. We would establish a groove with strings, keys, horns, and the rhythm section, then we'd break it down. By reducing the density of sound, you create an opening, a bed for an MC to rap over, because there is more room for his words. And rappers have taken advantage of this extra space for rhymes many, many times over the years. According to the website whosampled.com, 191 songs have borrowed from good times, including well-known hip-hop artists like Grandmaster Flash, LL Cool J, Will Smith, Slick Rick, The Beastie Boys, and Public Enemy, just to name a few. Rogers has said that the stack of royalty agreements for this one song is so thick that it reads like War and Peace. With the backing music laid down, it was time for the newly minted Sugar Hill Gang to do their thing. Luckily, the rhymes for Rapper's Delight came together about as easily as the music, with a few minor hiccups at the start. Here's the story of the recording as told by Master G and Wonder Mike from a 2011 documentary about Sugar Hill Gang called I Want My Name Back. We got, we got there, took off our jackets, went in that big room, mm -hmm. no booths, no partitions, Nothing. just three mics set up yeah. next to each other. Three mics, yeah. three headphones. I was to the left, him, uh, Hank was in the middle, and Guy was on the right. Yep. And you just recorded that one song. Yeah. Yeah. The, the song is 15 minutes long, and we recorded the vocals in 17 minutes. We only stopped one time, and that was when uh, I passed it to Hank for the first time. Right. Come on, Hank, sing that song. And he's so mentally sharp, he didn't quite He didn't get it. <laughs> Which is another telltale sign <laughs> that he, that he a wasn't a rapper. I'm passing it to you, bro. Because when do you right. sit? Because when when I finished, I passed it back to him, and he kept going. Yeah. Because we knew that that's how that's you how got you the do. mic to the next person. Right. But when we passed it to Hank, he didn't know what to do. The end of Rapper's Delight is not the end of that recording, that vocal session. It goes on for about another minute, but it's faded out before yeah, that. Yeah, they faded it. But there was no stopping to uh, direct us or produce us. Nothing. I said a hip hop, a hip it, a hip it, a hip hip hop. You don't stop the rocket to the bang bang boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. Upon its release on September 16, 1979, Rapper's Delight became an almost overnight success. The 15-minute song was a staple on black radio stations in New York City, with some DJs playing it back-to-back -back due to popular demand. The 7-minute cut was more popular on Top 40 Radio, helping it reach number 36 on the Billboard 100 and number 4 on the U.S. Hot Soul Singles chart by January 1980. As an early indicator of hip-hop's global appeal, the single hit number 1 on the Canadian Singles chart and on the Dutch Top 40, number 2 on the French, Belgium, Swiss, Norwegian, and Swedish charts, and made it to number 3 in the U.K. and Germany. At its peak in popularity, the album was selling 50,000 copies every day and has since gone on to sell over 10 million copies, making it one of the best-selling rap singles of all time. 
The success of the song instantly changed the lives of the young members of the Sugar Hill Gang. Hank quit his job at Crispy Crust Pizza, as well as his job representing the rap group Mighty Force. Master G was so young he had to have his mom co-sign the record contract because he wasn't legally able to represent himself, but he soon dropped out of high school to pursue his music career instead. But it was Wonder Mike whose life might have been changed the most. Here he is describing his situation at the time in the documentary, I Want My Name Back. <laughs> Yo, when we could record a Rapper's Delight, I wanted to get my sleeping place in the park after Rapper's Delight was recorded. And I, got, damn it, I said I wasn't gonna say that shit on the, in this thing, but that's, that's what happened. I was hungry that day, B. I was not going back to the park. The mega-hit Rapper's Delight became the anchor for the group's debut album, the self-titled The Sugar Hill Gang, released in February 1980, reaching number four on the R&B charts. However, the album doesn't fully capitalize on the success of the single. It's been said that Sylvia Robinson didn't feel an album of all rap songs would work, so she had Positive Force, the in-house band at Sugar Hill, record a few slow jams to pad out the album. Aside from Rapper's Delight, the only other song on the album of any real interest to hip-hop is Rapper's Reprise, featuring The Sequence, the first all-female hip-hop crew to be featured on a record. Although Sugar Hill Gang released three more records in their prime, the only other album to chart was their sophomore effort, Eighth Wonder, released in 1981. The album peaked at number 50 on the Top 200 chart and number 15 on the R&B charts, with its biggest hit, the influential single, Apache, Jump On It. Underline Instrumental, also called Apache, was written back in 1954 by English composer Burt Whedon, inspired by the Burt Lancaster Western film of the same name. However, it wasn't until it was recorded by The Shadows, a UK band, that the song became a hit, reaching number one on the UK pop charts and breaking the top ten on charts across Europe. The song was recorded again in 1973 by the Incredible Bongo Band, which would mostly be forgotten today, except the song featured a lengthy introductory break that became a staple in early hip-hop music. Here are clips from The Shadows and the Bongo Band's version side-by-side for comparison. For the Sugar Hill Gang's version of Apache, they added Old West-inspired lyrics, including plenty of lines that would be considered in poor taste today, like the cartoonish war cry that marks the end of each chorus. That being said, it's an incredibly catchy song and is a perfect distillation of commercial hip-hop at the time. The single went on to become a modest hit for the group, topping out at number 53 on the Billboard Hot 100, number 51 on the U.S. Dance Chart, and number 13 on the R&B Chart. The video for the song featured Big Bang Hank and Wonder Mike in stereotypical Native American headdresses, while the group and their backup band dance in Western-style clothes in front of a teepee, waving tomahawks around. But by far the most famous video for Apache is from Viva Lost Wages, a 1995 episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where Will and Carlton compete in a dance competition. 
The two mimic riding horses in a rodeo, bouncing along to the song, and would have since become the default dance move whenever anyone hears Apache. I'll put a link in the show notes to refresh your memory. The other single from the album, the title track, Eighth Wonder, didn't fare as well on the charts, reaching only number 82 on the Billboard Top 100. She is up my back against the rock, my deck. Woo-ha! Got the molar check. Let's scream, let's shout, let's turn this function out and keep keeping on. But you don't rush, let's make this party the real cold crush. Let's scream, let's shout. It heavily interpolated the beat from Daisy Lady by the funk group Seventh Wonder to great effect. Although the song might not have been a big hit, it was not forgotten, especially by Busta Rhymes, whose 1996 song Woo Ha, Got You All in Check, was inspired by a line from the Sugar Hill single. Even though Busta was clearly using the line as an homage, Sugar Hill Records sued him just the same until they got paid for its use. Rappers Delight catapulted the group to stardom. Once the song became a hit, they toured America as the opening act for R&B groups who were less than kind to the new kids on the block. There are stories of jealous headliners like the Bar Kays turning the stage lights off or even unplugging the mics during a Sugar Hill Gang performance. But the popularity of this new form of music could not be denied. As Wonder Mike says in his interview with TheFoundation.com, quote, I remember once it was us, Slave, Cameo, Zap, and Sky, and we were opening up the show. This was 1980. And by the end of the tour, we were headlining. I remember them saying, they ain't singing, they just talking. While many musicians at the time didn't respect hip-hop, before long the gang was headlining a world tour of their own. In the meantime, they continued to break new ground for the art form, like becoming the first rap group to perform on American Bandstand on September 5th, 1981. How did you all get together? Well, a wonderful lady by the name of Sylvia Robinson. I know her from my past. Yes, she had an idea of um, putting a rap record together, which is what we do. So let, let me stop right there, because there are people, we were talking about our anniversary show, who listen to Mickey and Sylvia, right. a thing called Love is Strange. That right. lovely lady, is Sylvia Robinson, is now in the second generation of music. She put you together? Yes. Her and her son, Joey Robinson. Now, they had an idea, so uh, they had a little information about Hank, right? Mm -hmm. So they came to the pizza place where he worked at. The, the, the what? The uh, pizza place? The pizza shop for which I worked at, making pizza all day, 10 hours. And sampling the goods along the way. Oh, yes, always happening. <laughs> all right, and, then, and then, then what happened? And then I happened to be walking down the street, and I auditioned for them in a, a car. Okay, all this happened in the car. And we went up to her home, um, nice big mansion she lives in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mike came, and the three of us auditioned at the house again, and she married the three of us together. And it's it's phenomenal. You've been all over the world. How does somebody in, in, in a place where they don't speak English understand this? Um, if they don't speak English, they don't understand what we're saying exactly, the literal meaning of it. But because they like the beat and they've heard it over and over again, they, they just like it. Do you get the audience to respond like these do when they say, Sugar Hill Gang, they yell it out, and yeah. all the Frenchmen yell it yeah. out? They, they always fantastic response wherever we go, thank God. Now, aside from rap music, do you sing harmonies and other stuff? Oh, yes, we sing ballads. It's a whole, we're very versatile. The more versatile are, the longer our longevity will be. You know it. Good luck, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Nice to have you with us. Master G, Wonder Mike, stand by. This is Foreigner. Follow me, man, this way. Of course, with success usually comes controversy. And for the Sugar Hill Gang, the trouble began before they even really got started. If you'll recall, when the trio auditioned for Sylvia Robinson on that fateful day in August 1979, Master G and Wonder Mike were established rappers in the New Jersey hip-hop scene. Big Bank Hank, though, was not a rapper, but did manage a rap group, and the rhymes he spit for his audition were just lines he'd memorized from the performances of his client, Curtis Brown, a.k.a. Casanova Fly. 
So when Hank got the Sugar Hill Gang gig, he went to Casanova Fly and explained the situation. At the time, Brown, like most New York rappers, had no interest in recording a rap record. Feeling like Hank's big break would be a big bomb, Brown laid out his notebooks filled with rhymes and said, take whatever you want. As Brown said in a 2014 editorial for Q Point, quote, I was kind of nonchalant about it. I'm not thinking anything is going to come from it. And if it did by happenstance, then all right. Well, hey, he comes from us, so if there's any trickle down, it'll trickle down to us. As far as trying to protect myself, we didn't know about lawyers and publishing and writers and mechanical royalties or nothing like that. We weren't part of the music industry. While many of the lines in Rapper's Delight are original, the song is also filled with rhymes like Hotel, Motel, Holiday Inn, If Your Girl Starts Acting Up, Then You Take Her Friend, that had been staple rhymes for rappers in the hip-hop party scene for years. Between these well-worn hooks and his choice of plenty of innocuous lines from Casanova Fly's rhyme books, Hank could have easily hidden the fact that he didn't write his own lyrics. But for whatever reason, Hank chose to use one of the only rhymes that wouldn't have been written by anyone else but Casanova Fly. In the beginning of the song, the other members of the group introduced themselves by their MC names. For example, See, I am Wonder Mike, and I'd like to say hello. And then, I said a M-A-S, a T-E-R, a G with a double E. I said I go by the unforgettable name of the man they call the Master G. But Hank starts his first rhyme by saying, I'm the C-A-S-N, the O-V-A-N, the rest is F-L-Y. To the average listener, it would be perfectly safe to assume Hank's MC name is Casanova Fly, because he just spelled it. In fact, it's only well into the 15-minute version of the song when he actually says his name is Big Bank. And that line isn't even included in the seven-minute version, so people who only knew the most popular version of the song probably thought his name was Casanova Fly. So why is this such a big deal? An MC's name is his onstage persona. It's his signature for the rhymes he spits. So when people heard Hank's introductory lyric, many longtime fans in the Bronx hip-hop scene assumed this was the MC they all knew, Casanova Fly. The real Casanova Fly didn't have any interest in recording a rap record, partially because he was worried it would hurt his credibility in the hip-hop community, that everyone would see him selling out the culture for his own advancement. So immediately, Brown wasn't happy to be confused with the rapper on the radio. However, once the confusion was cleared up, the backlash instead turned to the Sugar Hill Gang, who were pegged as biters, rappers who steal lines from other MCs. Even though Wonder Mike and Master G wrote their own rhymes, they weren't well known in the Bronx scene, so the two were guilty by association with Hank. The fact that the group was manufactured in the studio, rather than organically coming together as a crew in the underground party world, didn't help their reputation with fans either. The gang was seen as phonies, just cashing in on all the hard work the early innovators had been doing for nearly a decade. In fact, when they performed in some venues, especially in New York City, they would often get booed by angry concertgoers. According to Master G and Wonder Mike from the documentary I Want My Name Back, the lack of fresh rhymes coming out of Hank was apparent right from the start. Yeah, I'm up here right. coming off the top. I mean, I'm freestyling. I'm coming right. off the top the of my head, right. coming off the dome, saying this and that. Coming, I'm, I'm giving up my best stuff. And every time... Yeah, man, it's, it's my thing right here. And every time I give it back to him... He kept saying the same thing. <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, okay, maybe, maybe that's, you know, his bread and butter. So he's doing it over and over again because, you know, it seemed like that was working. But, you know, like I said, later on, of course, we found out the only reason, the reason why he kept saying the same thing is because he had no raps. Had no rap. He was reciting raps that he remembered right. that he heard somebody else do. Later, when the gang went to produce a follow-up to Rapper's Delight called Sugar Hill Groove, Master G says in a 2005 interview with the Foundation, quote, It was like, okay, it's writing time. I would write something. Mike would write something. When we got to Hank, he had his pad, but never had anything. This struck us as odd, and we were like, damn, you said all that on Rapper's Delight? What happened? Eventually, we found out, and what happened was, he never wrote on anything. He gets no mechanical royalties on any of the songs because he never wrote anything. But that's not to say Hank was a liability, either. In the same interview, Master G goes on to say, quote, Hank is like Dion Warwick. She might not write a word, but she has the voice. That's how Hank is. When you wrote something for him and he finally got it, it was magic. 
Shortly after Rapper's Delight was released, Casanova Fly changed his MC name to Grandmaster Kaz to avoid the association with the song, and then joined the pioneering hip-hop crew, the Cold Crush Brothers. But as time went on and hip-hop continued to grow, Kaz began to think about how much money he could have been earning from Rapper's Delight. He asked for writing credit on the song, but was swiftly ignored by the Robinsons. He made his case for credit in the streets and in numerous interviews over the years, but to no avail. So in 2014, after the Grammys announced that the song would be inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, Brown got a lawyer to try to get his name added to the credits. Sadly, even that attempt went nowhere. Over the years, Casanova Fly was fairly vocal in the hip-hop scene that his rhymes had been stolen, doing his part to tarnish the reputation of Hank. The two crossed paths many times, but unfortunately never got any closure about their beef, as Hank died on November 11, 2014, from cancer. Before his death, Hank's stance on the controversy was addressed in the 2004 documentary And You Don't Stop, 30 Years of Hip-Hop History. But I can understand why he would say that, and I, um, I have nothing but love for him. I mean, we used a lot of stuff together, I, and I, I guess he, you know, because he didn't move to that magnitude or I couldn't bring him in because it was something that Miss Rob had already formatted. But some of the stuff was done together, and I just transposed it over. In his 2014 editorial for Q Point titled, Making Peace with Big Bang Hank, written shortly after Hank's death, Curtis Brown had this to say, quote, Mainly, I just wish that things could have been different. It may have looked like he didn't care about it, but he did. Coming to New York and people being in the front of their shows, booing Hank and saying stuff, and to walk around with this hanging over him all his life, I'm pretty sure it had to constantly eat away at him. I just wish he had made peace with it, and I'm pretty sure that he didn't. While he may not have gotten credit or royalties for the song, Kaz did get a little taste of justice when he released the diss track MC Delight in the year 2000. The song is essentially a parody of Rapper's Delight, using a similar beat, many of the same cadences, and changes up the lyrics to directly reference the Big Bang Hank controversy, calling out his old manager for stealing Kaz's lyrics. I'm a C-A-S and the O-V-A and the rest is F-L-Y. The cattle pit this rhyme was my manager. Pure treason, I'll tell you why. Cause he's six foot one, two tons of bum and can't dress to a T. He ain't got no clothes, much less no and ain't even no MC. Word. Oddly enough, Kaz has received his due props by the surviving members of the Sugar Hill Gang. In fact, the trio of Grandmaster Kaz, Wonder Mike, and Master G have performed Rapper's Delight together at more than one live event starting in the early 2000s. Here's a clip of them performing at the Video Music Box 25th Anniversary Concert in Central Park in July In a 2013 interview for AllHipHop.com, Wonder Mike had this to say about Kaz performing with the group, quote, Hank has a very forceful, aggressive style, but Kaz says them in a smoother, slicker way. When I heard it for the first time, I was like, damn, that's the way it's supposed to sound. In that same interview, Master G said, quote, I've performed Rapper's Delight 10,000 times, but to hear this person perform his own lyrics is indescribable. No one knows your lyrics like you do. Unfortunately, the drama for the Sugar Hill Gang didn't end with Big Bang Hank biting rhymes. As a breakout group with a chart-topping single that leads to tours all over the world, you would think the members of Sugar Hill Gang were swimming in dough. However, that couldn't be farther from the truth. In the 2011 documentary I Want My Name Back, Master G and Wonder Mike tell the story of how Sylvia and Joe Robinson used the young musician's ignorance about the music industry to cheat the group out of millions of dollars in royalties over the years. While the documentary focuses on the Sugar Hill Gang, the Robinsons' shifty business practices with other artists are well documented too. 
According to some former Sugar Hill Records musicians, a common tactic the company used was not showing artists' royalty statements, so the artists had no real idea how much money they were owed. Instead, the Robinsons would cut checks to give them a little spending money, but then also buy the artists' gifts, that potentially inflated cost of which would be taken out of the artists' royalty payments behind the scenes, so it looked legit on the books. It was not unusual for the Sugar Hill Gang to come off a three-month tour with new clothes and fancy jewelry purchased for them by the Robinsons, but barely enough money to make ends meet. Another way of hiding the money was leasing cars for the performers, again with the money taken out of the royalty back end. This seems like a nice company perk, but according to Sugar Hill Records signee Grandmaster Flash in a 2005 interview for Vanity Fair, the cars were also used as leverage to keep the young artists in line. He is quoted as saying, Yeah, Sylvia would lease the cars for everyone, and she would take them away if you didn't follow instructions. It wasn't a business relationship, it was more personal than that. If you got the lady Sylvia mad, if you got the queen mad, you would definitely be in lots of trouble. But if the artists became upset by some of these business practices, the label was known to play favorites until they gave in. In the same Vanity Fair article, Africa Bambata is quoted as saying, I was hearing stories. Sugar Hill could be like, we're going to make Flash hot now. If Flash gets too uppity, it's going to be the Sugar Hill Gang. If the Sugar Hill Gang gets too uppity, we're going to give it to Spoonie G. But the biggest offense with the most long-lasting impact was taking credit for songs. As producers, it wasn't unusual for Sylvia and Joe to get co-writing credit, which meant they got royalties from the song. But the final straw for some Sugar Hill artists came when the Robinsons' teenage sons would get a writing credit, despite not helping with any part of the song. Bassist Doug Wimbish, who would later go on to play for the revolutionary rock group Living Color, recalls writing and composing the song Vice with rapper Melly Mel to be included on the soundtrack for the hit TV show Miami Vice. Crying. It pays real nice, but what you really didn't know, the crowd pays twice. It pays once in money, twice in years, in the jail cell, trying to hide your tears. In the chip bag, cause you tried to get bitch in the graveyard, or in the shallow ditch. It's money or time, so make up your mind. Vice, 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 when the song was released, Leland Robinson, Joe and Sylvia's son, was given a writing credit as a graduation present, meaning he would make money off Wimbish and Melly Mel's work for decades, even though he had nothing to do with the song. Meanwhile, as the artists were struggling to pay their bills, the money was rolling in at Sugar Hill Records. One artist recalls Joey Jr., a 17-year-old kid who was given producing credit on many Sugar Hill Records, had three cars, a brand new 1979-98 Oldsmobile, a 79 Corvette Stingray, and a 1977 Ferrari. But Joey didn't like the Stingray, so Sylvia bought him a Mercedes instead. By 1984, the Sugar Hill Gang wanted to change creatively to adapt to the ever-evolving sound of hip-hop. However, the record company refused to let them shake things up, feeling like if it wasn't broken, it didn't need fixing. Between this creative roadblock and the sketchy financial situation, Master G left Sugar Hill Records, essentially breaking up the group. But with virtually nothing to show for his five years as part of one of the biggest musical acts in the world, he was forced to sell magazines door-to-door to scrape out a living. Wonder Mike left a year later in 1985, stuck in a deep depression, and got hooked on cocaine as a way to deal with his emotions. Eventually, he got himself clean and used what little money he had left to start a painting business. Hank was the only one who stuck with the label, despite Mike and G trying to get him to break out so the three could do their own thing. The former members of the Sugar Hill Gang struggled until the early 1990s, when old-school hip-hop was seen a resurgence in popularity. Seeing an opportunity, Joey Jr., now a grown man and much more involved in the family business, tried to get the Sugar Hill Gang back together. Master G held his ground and refused the invitation, but Wonder Mike joined up because he needed the money. Mike now calls 1994 to 2005 the 11 dumbest years of my life. During this time, the label was allegedly still trying to pull the same tricks as they had before, promising gifts and apartments for the artists instead of just paying them outright. Mike had wised up to this scheme, though, and took a harder stance with the label this time. But the record company still had control over almost every facet of the reunion. So even while he was performing with the newly reformed Sugar Hill Gang, Mike continued to paint houses between gigs to make ends meet. With Big Bank Hank and Wonder Mike on board, the Sugar Hill Gang reunion was still one member short, 
Since Guy O'Brien wasn't willing to come back as Master G, Joey Jr. Robinson stepped up and took his place, even taking the stage name Master G. Because it had been 30 years since the group had been seen regularly, most fans didn't know they weren't watching all the original members. Wonder Mike suggested Joey at least change the name to something else, but Joey refused. In 2002, a few years into the gang's resurgence, Joey Jr. quietly trademarked the name Sugar Hill Gang. His slightly shady business moves continued in 2005 when, shortly after Mike got fed up and left the group, Joey Jr. filed to copyright the names Master G and Wonder Mike, using false documents to testify under oath that the names did not belong to any living individuals. He filed for the copyrights despite the fact that both Wonder Mike and Master G had used their stage names before they even signed with Sugar Hill Records, and should have been owned by the artists. With the stage names and the group name legally secured, Joey Jr. continued in his role as Master G, he got another artist to perform as Wonder Mike, and along with the original Big Bang Hank, set out to tour as the Sugar Hill Gang. Around that same time, Wonder Mike and Master G and former Sugar Hill producer Hendog formed a group called the Original Sugar Hill Gang and began playing concert dates. With two groups presenting themselves as a genuine article, Joey Jr. used his deeper pockets to thwart the attempts of Wonder Mike and Master G from using the Sugar Hill Gang name to forward their music careers. First, in 2006, Joey Jr. blocked an already underway European tour by the original Sugar Hill Gang by threatening to sue Wright and O'Brien, as well as a dozen venues that had already booked the group if they went ahead with the performances. Then, in 2008, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame threw a benefit concert and invited the Joey Jr. version of the group to perform, unaware of the legal drama behind the scenes. When they found out about the original members' plight, they offered to hire them for another concert in 2009 to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Rapper's Delight, but Joey Jr. also shut that show down by threatening legal action. During this mid-2000s legal back-and-forth, it was revealed that Master G and Wonder Mike had only brought in about $250,000 in royalties from the years spanning the height of their popularity in 1979 until the present day of 2009. This breaks down to just over $8,000 per year. However, over that same time period, the Robinsons, who were doing everything they could to prevent the former members of the group from capitalizing on their past work, had amassed a fortune worth more than $100 million. Finally, in 2010, a judge ordered the two groups to come to a settlement within 48 hours. In the end, Robinson got to keep the name Sugar Hill Gang, but Wright and O'Brien were able to reclaim their stage names. They went on to perform under the band name Rapper's Delight featuring Wonder Mike and Master G. Despite all the legal animosity, there is a happy ending here. After Joey Jr.'s death in 2015, Wonder Mike, Master G, and Hendog have come to an agreement with the Robinson family and are now touring under the name Sugar Hill Gang once again. Starting in 2016, they embarked on a world tour that saw them perform in places like the UK and Hong Kong. And this year, in 2019, They've been celebrating the 40th anniversary of Rapper's Delight with a tour featuring old-school hip-hoppers Melly Mel and Scorpio, former members of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. In fact, just before I released this episode of the show, the Sugar Hill Gang, Hendog, Scorpio, and Melly Mel appeared on the Jimmy Kimmel Show to sing Rapper's Delight as part of Jimmy's special New York Week. And I gotta say, they can still rock the mic 40 years later. It's impossible to measure the influence and importance of Rapper's Delight. Before this song, no one thought a rap record would work, but the Sugar Hill Gang proved them all wrong. After this initial success, the floodgates opened on hip-hop, and suddenly everyone wanted to be the next Sugar Hill Gang, even if they might not have wanted to admit it. The song has become a staple of pop culture, featured in numerous commercials, movies, TV shows, and even video games. To prove its worth to American culture, Rapper's Delight was added to the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry in 2011, joining other African-American artists like Miles Davis, Robert Johnson, Chuck Berry, Billie Holiday, and Aretha Franklin. The registry's mission is to celebrate and preserve songs and recordings that it deems, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, and or informs or reflects life in the United States. I think it's safe to say, the Rapper's Delight does all this and more. 
Now, remember how I said that music history is nebulous? That even though rap has a definitive start date, things start to get a little murky after that? Well, what if I told you that Rapper's Delight wasn't actually the first rap record? Released in March 1979, just a few months before Rapper's Delight, was King Tim III by the Fatback Band. All right, y'all. Here we go. Your hands and you stomp your feet Cause you're listening to the sound of the show shot beat I'm the K-I-N-G, the T-I-M King Tim the third, and I am him Just me, Fat Fat, and the crew We're doing it all, just for you We're strong as an ox and tall as a tree We can rock you so viciously We throw the highs in your eyes, the bass in your face We're the funk machines that rock the human race Skate, down, boogie, shot Come on girl, let's do the rock Slam, dunk, do the jerk Let me see your body work Fatback was a funk band that wanted to try something a little different, so they brought in rapper King Tim III, a.k.a. Tim Washington, to spit some rhymes over a disco-infused groove. The song was a B-side to their single, You're My Sweet Candy, a song that topped out at number 67 on the R&B charts. But King Tim III was getting a lot of play on black radio, so they re-released it as a standalone single, and it wound up reaching number 26 on the R&B charts. The song is mostly an instrumental, with a few refrains sung by backup singers and a few short verses of rhymes by King Tim III. What's interesting, though, is how many lines or lyrical structures from King Tim III are similar to Rapper's Delight. For example, the way King Tim introduces himself in the beginning, I'm the K-I-N-G, the T-I-M, is virtually identical to how the Sugar Hill Gang introduced themselves. There are also lyrical tidbits that are reflected throughout hip-hop history, like a little left hand right in the air and sway him like you just don't care, is a variation on the more commonly known throw your hands in the air and wave him like you just don't care as well as riffs on phrases like to the break and rock so viciously can all be heard in the song. Clearly there was a common vernacular in hip-hop even in these early days of the movement. While it might have technically been first King Tim III's impact wasn't nearly as profound as that of Rapper's Delight, leaving the song as merely a footnote in hip-hop history. On the next episode of Bring the Noise, we're going back. How far are you going back? Way back! To look at an early influence on rap music that will blow your mind, daddy-o. Make sure you subscribe today so you don't miss a beat. And while you're at it, fire up your Spotify account for the Bring the Noise podcast playlist. After every episode, I'll be putting together a playlist for that episode filled with songs from the featured artists, as well as other music mentioned in the show, so you can follow along with rap history as it blossoms into the world of hip-hop we know today. Check out the show notes for a link to this episode's playlist, or just search for Bring the Noise podcast in the Spotify app and you'll find them all. As always, thanks for listening to the latest episode of Bring the Noise, a history of early hip-hop presented by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. This has been your host, Rob Lamley. Please subscribe and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram at smxaudio, and check out the website spacemonkeyx.net for today's show notes, as well as links to other workshop podcasts. Thanks again for listening to Bring the Noise, a history of early hip-hop. I'll see you all next time. Bang, bang, the